Some said they couldn't do it. Even more said they probably shouldn't. But here they are, bringing you another episode of the Happy Zen Podcast. Welcome your hosts, Adam and Matt. Uh, okay, hello everyone. We are back with another episode of the Happy Zen Podcast. And with us today, uh, we have somebody who we've been trying to get on for quite a while and our schedules just haven't uh, worked out. He's been super busy and I was sick for a while and we've now got him on lockdown here. And that is Peter Tchaikowski of Rock Paper Cynic. Uh, is it canon? Uh, what's George doing today? He's got books. He's got a tabletop RPG that we're going to be talking about. He's got an awesome job. He just keeps making stuff. Uh, what do you call yourself? Just a creator, or an artist? What, what, what's the best fit for what you do? Yeah, for, for a long time, I was using the term, the term humorist because uh, a lot of the different creative work that I do all ties back to like making people laugh in some way. Mm-hmm. But some of the more recent stuff doesn't really fit in with that as well. Like... Um, I do this weird short story project called The Shortest Story, and it's often like weirdly grim and dark and uh, and stuff like that. So it, it doesn't quite fit in that same ballpark. And then the RPG stuff, you know, we definitely have like a few humor beats here and there, but for the most part, it's you know much more like epic storytelling. Uh, be prepare yourself, hero, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, um, I wear a lot of creative hats. Um, I, I haven't figured out a good term yet. Um, uh-huh. So if if uh, it's maybe it's something we can workshop this episode. It's, it's a work in progress. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so as we were just saying, you you wear a lot of hats. Um, you know, writing and I'm assuming you draw some of your stuff. You or do you draw the majority yeah. of your stuff, or do you have somebody draw for you most of the time? Yeah. So for rock paper cynic, it's it's my art with the occasional guest artist, but you know, 99 percent of the time, it's it's just me there. And then for Is It Canon and What's George Doing Today, all the art uh, is done by uh, Aaron Lenk, um, who's a really talented uh, Toronto-based illustrator uh, who I've been working with for a long time. Um, really interesting guy. He's got his own really cool projects that are worth checking out, too. Um, and then the shortest story is like a it's graphically designed with photographs. And I, I, I take some of the photographs, but most of them I source from uh, royalty-free public access photo databases. And um, yeah, and then for Emberwind, we have just like the most incredible art team. Holy cow. Um, uh, getting to work with, with these people is blows my mind every week. And we're definitely going to link to most of these projects uh, off the website when we post, the, uh, post this. Um, so if you can go to our, our website and check it out. Do you have, like, how did you get onto this path? Did you go to school for like a creative kind of side of things or were, did you have a completely different path before this or how did this come about? Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I, I had a, I had a circuitous path. I like went into like school knowing that like I wanted to study things and I thought I wanted to be an academic. Um, and I started off studying like philosophy and then I switched into early modern studies and then I switched into, um, English and then English and French and then eventually English and creative writing. Um, and what I realized pretty quickly was that um, I, 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 I loved the discipline of academia and I liked that you got to play with ideas all day. Like that was the coolest thing in the world to me. But then I found out that like the average master's thesis gets read by, I think the number is like 69 people. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that kind of weirded me out. Like I, I, you know, when I play with ideas, I want to get them in front of people. I want those ideas to be alive. I want people to respond to them. I want them to tell me when the ideas are weird or challenging. Um, and you don't really get that if you're kind of keeping all that work behind like an academic paywall or behind just the like 
intimidating ivory tower of academia. And I, I really didn't like that. So I started making web comics while I was still in, in college as a way of like coming up with ideas and putting them out into the world immediately. Um, and so at the same time, I was starting to like work on short stories and poetry and then also comics. And comics was, was the thing where I found that I could have an immediate conversation with people. Like they'd have an immediate reaction to the image and then they'd unpack the idea and they'd have, they'd have thoughts they could share. And because it was live on the internet, you know, people could talk to me right away about it. Um, and I loved that. It was the exact opposite of academia. You know, it was, it was quick and dirty and interactive. Um, there's a lot of respect for the other person there. Instead of it being like a me lectures you situation, it was like, we're having more of a conversation. Um, and that was just so much fun. Um, and so, uh, I ended up finishing my undergrad and then doing a, a really quick sort of master's degree at the same school. And I had a really great time there at Dalhousie University. Um, but I really quickly realized how much I love doing the webcomic. And I realized that I wanted to kind of see if I could turn that into something that would be a, a job after college. And it took a long time to get there. Um, you know, I worked other jobs and did the comics as a side hustle for, um, well, Rock Paper Cynic just turned like 10 years old. Um, and I think, yeah, for basically seven and a half of those years, it was a side hustle. Um, I think two or three of those years I was in, I was in college. And then um, it's just been the last like little over two, two and a half years that I've gotten to like do it full time. Um, and that has been a really, uh, really interesting adventure. Cool. Do you think by getting your, getting the web-based comic up and out in such an early development piece, do you think that allowed you to go through a lot of the the, the growth hurdles quicker, and, and to to get feedback that uh, I guess it's a two parter? Did you did that that allow that growth to happen quicker? And then the second part of that question I'm, I'm kind of leading up to is that um, was there more value in the direct feedback you were getting from that that um, the Joe public essentially by being on the web comic than versus the uh, you know dealing with other academics for feedback? Yeah, so I think you get a greater volume of feedback, not necessarily a greater quality. Um, and you have to learn what you want to do with that. Uh, the advantage to, to getting criticism from the internet um, is the same thing as the disadvantage. It's that like nobody owes you anything and no one's going to be nice to you if they don't feel like it. So you have to be ready for like negative criticism, which you know I definitely got. Um, and you have to be ready to decide which of it is, I'm not going to say valid, because it's all valid in some way or other, but like which of it's the most helpful for your goals. So, you know, if someone's advice was just draw better, then like, yeah, I'm going to try. But like, yeah. you know, I, I, I started off as a very poor artist and I was going to need time to improve. So that was something I was focusing on. But like, you know, I, I knew that it would take some time. So then if someone said, ah, you know, your your jokes are really clever, but sometimes they're like, you know, you're, you're making a reference to something that's like a, a deep end philosophy reference or like a history or English reference that like, you know, people aren't going to get. So if you want to be obscure, find a way to make those, that obscure material more accessible to people, find a way to teach them about it while you make the joke. Um, and that was something that I got like really early on in the feedback that, that really helps me become, you know, go, go from like, again, I, I was in my head, I was writing for academics still to like writing for, you know, more Joe public or whatever you want to call it. Um, but rather than, having the joke have like a line where like you're inside the joke, you're outside of the joke and it's exclusionary, finding a way to make it a bit more like inviting mm. um, where uh, you're, you're letting somebody in on the joke rather than like using it as a, as a litmus test to see whether or not they get the reference. Right. Um, you're not, you're yeah. not essentially making fun of the person who doesn't get the joke. They're, they're not felt, uh, I don't know, Excluded. made stupid or yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. So that was, that was really helpful. And yeah. And again, just the honesty, because like academics, people will kind of like, 
walk in circles around their point, especially if they don't want to be too confrontational. Some academics are really direct. Um, but it was nice to like have that direct feedback from people. And also it was nice to have like people who, who were really happy and just supportive and, and, and um, like encouraging in the early days. Hmm. Um, Cause you're never quite sure what you're doing when you start out. You're never quite sure if it's worth your time. So the people who, who take the time to let you know, yeah, you know, this is funny or interesting or different. That's, that's such a huge, uh, huge deal to have. I would imagine having feedback one way or the other is better than none at all. Having that vacuum of having no feedback would just be, I think that's the worst because then you, you, yeah, like you said, you don't know even which way to steer the ship if you just keep going, yeah. if you make any adjustments, that kind of thing. So, yes. yeah, exactly. So, how do you deal with the, I mean, obviously the stuff, and I'm, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the stuff you are, are writing about obviously have, um, you have a high level of interest in. Right. That I see. Yeah. I see. There's a. There's pieces here that obviously are influential from growing up uh, as a zennial like us, growing up through yeah. the the 80s and 90s, and so you can see that influence. Where do you draw the line for, or how do you draw the line for when something is starting to get more, inter like into what you're truly interested in, or, or something that you are trying to keep that's a wider range of an audience. Do you find there's a right. divide? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, and it's a, it's a tough one to, to, to balance. Like it's some it's a it's an equation that you're constantly balancing as a creative. Um, one of the most helpful, like it's so simple, but it was so helpful um, pieces of advice that I got um, was from uh, the Double Clicks, um, who are like uh, sibling performers from uh, Portland. I think they're now in LA, and they just do this amazing uh, geek uh, comedy music, and, and now they've gone to other creative endeavors. Um, and uh, they said, uh, what was it? Right, so make things that you are interested in making um, and make things that people like and then find the overlap between those and just make that sweet spot and that's, that's how you build a career. And like, it's so simple, but it, it, it's extremely helpful. Um, and you know, remember that's an iterative process. So you're like kind of figuring it out. You're, you're zeroing in on that spot uh, as you experiment. And sometimes you'll do stuff that's like just for you and it'll be over here. And sometimes you'll do stuff that um, uh, is like just for the audience and you don't care about. And they can usually tell. Like I found every time I've tried to write something that felt relevant but wasn't relevant to me, it's fallen flat. And I've just kind of stopped doing that um, because you know I, I thought it was going to be easier than it was. I think everybody has this kind of vision that like, ah, you know, I could sell out if I wanted to and, 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 uh, you know, get clicks really quickly or easily. Selling out's really hard. Um, uh, and you, you might find that it's, it's, it's not as, as straight a path as you think. So I've stopped trying to do, do comics or jokes or material where like, you know, it's not for me, but I think it's for somebody else. Right. It's just not worth doing. Um, so yeah, I think it's something where you practice, you pay attention to what has you excited and you pay attention to what people are responding to when you find, um, that overlap where like, people are excited and their energy level matches yours, you just pay attention to what's what's there. Um, and the hardest part is recognizing those moments um, and still intentionally taking risks to go outside of them. Because you, otherwise you'll just get locked in on this one spot and I find that things can get dry pretty quickly there. Um, so you're like, just kind you know, of pushing I, I your boundaries just a little bit out from the safety safe zone every time kind of thing, just to see where you can push it to without alienating people, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in doing so, you're also helping them expand their circles of, of knowledge and interest, which is which is good for them. And, and you also just might find that, that you know, there's um, this is the spot you thought you were focusing on. But there's a weird little spot over here where you still share, you know, a mutual passion or interest. Um, and if nothing else, it's just like it's it's a good way to keep yourself motivated is, is stay connected with your material. Um, yeah, I think that's people don't realize that, like, 
you know, maybe today um, you have lots of motivation, but like, are you still going to be interested in this 10 years from now, right. which is something that I'm now dealing with. I'm, I'm 10 years into this comic and it's different from when I started and what motivates me is different, but the comic has given me a space to grow that way, um, which has been really helpful. Um, you know, it's, it's in some ways, it's not a diary comic, but in some ways it is because it does follow, you know, my progression and my interest as a creative. Um, and I've been able to like carry the audience with me through those changes. Right. I would imagine maybe earlier on, you know, your interests have obviously changed over the years or, you know, narrowed or, or widened in certain areas. So that's going to be reflected obviously in the comic, as like you said, you want to be writing and drawing things that you know, or that you have, you know, you care about and that you are invested in. So that comic should technically shift with you, even if not on purpose, just by, you know, osmosis, just the way it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. At looking at a completely dry level of things, you mentioned um, kind of keeping track of what people are interested in, what people aren't. Do you use things like um, like uh, web statistics and, and uh, your Twitter analytics, things like that? Uh, I don't know, the Instagram stuff to keep track of what really pops and what stuff maybe doesn't do as well. Does that factor in at all? Yeah, it, it definitely factors in um, less from like a, what I, which I want to write perspective and more like, okay, if I'm going to do a t-shirt or two this season or like do a, do a new poster, what do people really like get excited about, um, you know, in the last month or two of comics and, and going back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I find I pay the most attention to, and this is like, I mean, I guess there's a business answer to this and then there's the, like the answer for what I actually end up doing. Cause I know what I should do for business. And sometimes I just don't have the energy. Yeah. Um, uh, and like metrics are something that I get really into for certain periods of time. And then I find that I'm exhausting myself with them. Um, like that's part of the reason that I took ads off the website um, six or seven years ago was I got so obsessed with the metrics and like trying to make sure that I was getting enough traffic to like make the ads worthwhile that I realized that like I'd stopped caring about the comics. Yeah. So I just like, I trashed the ads and never brought them back. Hmm. Um, and that was like an amazing decision. It, it definitely helped. And, and, you know, advertising has since gotten a lot worse in general on the internet. So I don't feel like it's something that I'm missing out on. I feel like it's something where like I get to feel like I, I own and I run and enjoy the site that much more. Um, so I do pay attention to like, sometimes to like how often something's getting shared. But the thing I pay the most attention to is comments. Um, that's where I find like you, you really get into if people are interested, if they're willing to take the time to like respond or share a thought or like even just, you know, at and tag somebody in who they think that would like this. Sure. To me, that's like a much more personal, like, oh, that person really got into it. Um, as opposed to like, you know, they, they just kind of clicked like in passing. Um, so that's, I pay attention to like if I'm having a conversation with someone about it or if they're just willing to take the time to call someone else into the conversation. That's that's really interesting. And that's that's usually something where that gets me paying attention. That's that seems like reasonable advice for sure. I mean, we see from our own stuff. I mean, you can't just go by numbers on social media because when, when we start doing a lot of digging, you find out a lot of it's, you know, bots or whatever. So the numbers specifically by themselves without looking at the context can be super useless. So even just looking at our posts, you know, and, and looking at, well, which one's got the most likes or whatever, doesn't really mean anything. If you look at it, it might've just been a hashtag or a keyword that just happened to trigger some bot or something like that and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, they really don't correlate. No. It's, you're, you're almost led to believe that social media tied together with, uh, you know, your your analytics, for lack of better terms, they don't have a direct correlation. I mean, someone out yeah. there, there's probably some marketing person out there going, yes, there is. And if you analyze it this way, but I'm like, really? It doesn't, we got a hell of a lot more listens on this than we do 
activity on social media. So we know yeah. something's working right with this. I think it's like a dopamine <laughs> kick, though, right? Yeah. Like to see a like or a, a thumbs up or something kind of like spikes your dopamine for a second. You're like, oh, my God. But yeah, like you really look at it. I think the comments should be where or, you know, some sort of actual something more than one click. Yeah. So something like that makes more sense. Well, the interaction interaction shows that there's digestion, at least at some capacity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and, and yeah, it means that because you know it depends if if your goal is to get clicks, which for some people that makes sense. Um, then yeah, getting clicks should be your metric because that's that's what your goal is. But if your goal is to like have people read and think about, or have people listen to and think about something that you thought about and that you thought was worth the time to tell them about. Um, then that's your metric, and and that's what you should be trying to measure. And you know, Facebook likes or Instagram likes or whatever are an imperfect way to access that, but there are definitely better ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and, and and especially if you have, if you are into marketing or if you are into metrics, then you know maybe you just like to have them because you like to have them, and it's part of your motivation, and that's great. And there's, I go through phases like that. I'm like, yeah, this month I'm going to be into metrics. I'm going to pay attention to the Facebook stuff. But then, you know, again, you have to ask yourself, what's your goal and what purpose does it serve? Because, like, I used to think that the social media metrics would be a way to um, measure, like, appetite for new merch. So I would, like, try and figure out what what I should turn into merch based on, um, on what got likes. Um, and then I realized that, like, the threshold for a like is so much lower than the threshold for a purchase. So, like, one of my, one of, a very popular comic that I did in, like, 2014, um, I think it was around then. It was this comic about like the way that you open a bag of chips, what that says about you as a person, and like if you open it from the bottom, you're a psychopath. Yeah. Um, it was. It's like it's it's a very. It's like no one else I'd seen written a joke about it, so it was approachable humor that no one else had covered before, and it was funny. It was a funny joke, um, and it got a, a lot of likes and shares because it was very accessible and quick. And you know, I care about the way that I open my chip bag is is just worth a like. You know, it's just in that threshold, which is how it can it can go viral but then like nobody cares enough about how they open chips to to wear a t-shirt about right it. right mm-hmm. once people or have to start dropping money on something then it's a different threshold altogether yeah so yeah. like knowing your thresholds and knowing your goals helps you understand if if the metrics you're using are actually helping you measure the thing you want now is there someone like is there anyone that you looked at when you started this the web comics and then the writing and that that you not wanted to emulate, but you kind of looked at their career and said, you know, I want to be like that or do like that. Or was it because it was relatively early on? I mean, there's been web comics and that for, for, you know, pretty much forever. But, you know, was there anybody that you kind of aimed towards or was it kind of before there was a lot of people doing what you were doing? So you didn't have that as a as a guide. Oh, there, yeah, there were definitely some really great web comic artists working at that time. Uh, and there were some that I like consciously and unconsciously ripped off pretty poorly. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so I like going into web comics, I was a really big fan of um, a softer world, which is a, or was a photo comic done by Joey Camo and Emily Horn um, dinosaur comics by Ryan North. I really enjoyed XKCD. Um, uh, it's still really enjoyed by Randall Monroe um, and Perry Bible fellowship, uh, Dr. McNinja. There were, there were these old school web comics that I just loved. Um, and a lot of those kind of went like, you know, my early comics were just a mixed bag of like, whose style is Peter ripping off today? Right. And then I slowly sort of found my own voice and my own way of writing comics. And it got, uh, you know, developed my own thing. Um, but I think a lot of creatives start with imitation and then learn to like find their own voice or find their own, their own <laughs> goals. Yeah. Um, when it came time to like, when I decided I'm going to quit my job and do this full time, um, I actually like sent emails to a bunch of different 
creative people who worked in either geek music because it's a, it's another sort of project that I, I have on the go is doing geek music under the name Rock Paper Cynic, um, and and web comic artists and basically ask like what would you want to have known when you quit your job um, and did this full time and uh, like what advice would you give um, and Ryan North was uh was one of the guys who actually gave, like ended up saying like oh i'm gonna be taking my dog to the dog park and i'll have like an hour where like we're just like around the dog park and i can chat on the phone if you want um and so like a week after i quit my job i got to have this really helpful conversation with him about like how he managed his time and his projects and and uh how he went from like you know he had he had a webcomic called dinosaur comics which if people haven't read it it's always the same six panels visually with different text so it's this like very simple structured format, but he gets into these really big philosophical and scientific ideas through it. And it's really fascinating. And um, he has also a very distinct voice where there's this very like excited dude bro voice to it. That's really positive and, and genuine. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, um, he was someone who, when I quit my job, I started paying attention to what he was doing and trying to figure out how to do that. So, you know, I modeled some of my early Kickstarters off of, of the way that he ran his, um, his, one of the best pieces of advice that he gave me was treat your webcomic as a long-form visual resume. Um, so basically doing dinosaur comics five days a week for, um, I think he's been at it 15 years now, um, was his way of, of proving like I can write interesting, different material in a variety of voices on time. Uh, reliably and consistently and that's how he ended up getting um adventure time came to him to write the adventure time comics um marvel came to him to do squirrel girl um uh so he's someone who's always sort of found his own he's had his own creative niche where he has his own voice and then he's managed to use that to show that he could work on larger projects and bring on other really interesting projects um so that's something that i've I've really tried to pay attention to i would imagine the uh the, the schedule like of getting a comic out on a regular basis and some of these guys put them out every day or, you know, twice a week or, you know, I think if you do that for a long period of time, like you said, uh, a larger company, especially like a Marvel or something where they've got these guys that they've got to get these books out by a certain time, they're going to say, oh, look, you know, you've got a track record or a proven track record that you can do the work on time, on schedule, on a, on a consistent basis. Certainly something I see in web comics where, It'll be regular for a few years and then it just nose dives and then it comes back. And I mean, granted, people have, you know, a lot of the time it's not their main job. So, you know, they've got other things going on, but it's certainly something where the consistency is, is definitely, I think, more in play than, than some other, definitely other art forms. The webcomic seems to be uh, an ongoing uh, scheduled thing almost always. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the first like pieces of advice that I got when I was starting my webcomic. This is not from like a webcomic creator. This is just from a friend. He's like, if I can't see like when it updates and how often it updates, um, like from the main page easily, then I probably won't follow it because like it's, that's part of how I, I do my like daily reading mm-hmm. is knowing which webcomics update and how reliable they are. Um, and, um, I think he pointed, to, I think it was Sinfest, the webcomic Sinfest. He pointed to like, as an example of a, a webcomic that had updated every single day, never missed an update, even the day that like the server room for his web server literally exploded, he managed to like get the entire website backed up and on a different server and back up in time for that day's update. Wow, um, which is you know pretty legendary as yeah. like, a commitment to that. Yeah, so it definitely makes a uh, it definitely makes a difference. You got any questions well, so far? I don't want to overstep your. No, I was going to lead into. The, looking for the segue into the conversation about Emberwind, 
because getting away from it's definitely a jump away from the webcomic work that you have been do had been doing up to that point. And how did that conversation or how did that that fire get lit for you? Or was it something that was already burning and it was something you wanted to do and just the moment struck? Yeah, so I it's funny because the opportunity came about through web comics in a really roundabout way. Um, but, you know, I, so I've always loved tabletop RPGs um, before. I knew that D&D existed. Um, uh, my friends and I had invented this like six-sided die game that was basically a, 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 a RPG without a tabletop because we didn't have tables. We'd just go out and play at recess, like literally rolling the dice on the ground like we were like gambling at like <laughs> underground crafts or something. Uh, and it, it weirded the teachers out. Uh, but we had this game that we had like kind of we were making up the rules as we went along, but we used the dice for randomization. Um, and that was that was grade three. And, uh, and then I found out about D&D in grade five, and I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense. <laughs> um, and I got, I got really deep into it. And so I was playing D&D all through um, uh, elementary school, high school. And then in, in college, I actually started like a, an inter-campus gaming group that we ran like a living style D&D campaign with, um, we had like three or four certified GM storytellers. We had about 30 players on three campuses. We had a wiki um and uh, a living setting uh with like certified items and you'd have your, your experience certified and it was this really fun project i got to run for a year wow um i started kind of started it in the last year before i graduated so i've always loved tabletop rpgs um and i've done a lot of comics about them and kind of writing about that style of humor because it's it's an area of humor that i love and then about two years ago or a little less than that um uh, a friend who I'd made through webcomics, like he literally just walked up to my table um, at a at one of those like the, it's the December Fan Expo show, the really quiet one. I think it just uh, happened. Fan days, yeah, 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 yeah. Fan days. So it was a very quiet show, and he, he walked up to me and said, like, "Hey, I was thinking about starting a webcomic, and I was hoping to get advice. Would you be willing to be up for coffee?" Um, and this was this was actually I think four years ago. So that turned out to be my my like very good friend now, um, Hussein Panju, who does a webcomic called High Comedic Value. Um, who uh, like now I, I like do a lot of my convention tour with him. We'll share tables um, at a lot of the shows in Ontario, and he came out to Calgary with me last year, and is coming back to Calgary. Um, and uh, he's just like a great guy, very very funny voice, very very good with like puns. Um, and it was two years ago that he said, "Hey, like I have a friend from high school who is wants to do a Kickstarter for like a some kind of like tabletop game or a board game or something. Could you meet up with him for coffee and give him advice on crowdfunding? Because at that point, I think I'd run." three or four, maybe four crowdfunding campaigns. Um, and originally, like, it was just supposed to be, like, a one-and-done, like, coffee date with his friend Derek, Derek Chung, the um, founder and, and designer of, of Emberwind. Um, and so, like, he showed me, like, some of the preliminary materials. It was a game he'd been working on for eight or nine years at that point. Um, and he wasn't sure how he was going to distribute it yet. He had all these really interesting, odd ideas for it. And the game looked really cool. Um, and he told me that, uh, oh yeah, this game is more fun than D and D. Um, <laughs> bold statement. Like, yeah. Some bullshit right there. <laughs> uh, so I like, I'm like, okay, sure it is. But I, I gave him the advice that I could. And, um, uh, you know, we exchanged information and, um, Derek has a way of like pulling people into his orbit. Like if he sees like a use for you and his grand design for putting together this like interesting project or team, he'll, he'll like hang on. Um, and we had also like we connected a lot and we were talking like it was clear that we, we were passionate about games the same way. So I finally got to try Emberwind later in that year at, at Gen Con um, and just sit down for like a demo with him. And it was like end of a very long day. 
I think it was like one in the morning when we started playing the demo. So I was already like, oh, I'm tired. I'm not really sure I want to do this. And the moment the gameplay started, like I just perked right up. Like it was such an interesting format. Um, the mechanics were so fast and easy to learn, really crunchy. Um, and then his idea for storytelling um, both excited and infuriated me. He had this idea for like um, almost like a choose your own adventure style of, um, uh, of going through the storylines. But he'd done so little work into thinking, like, how are the players going to respond to you just telling them their options? Like, are they going to want a voting system? Are they going to want a way to resolve things? Um, and so the system had so much potential and at the same time it was so frustrating because there's so much more I thought we could do with it. Um, and then slowly, I think, out of excitement for the project and excitement about the system, I, like, kind of I found myself getting more and more involved. And then eventually I, I um, uh, ended up working on some of the writing for the first campaign. I completely overhauled the narrative system um, into the crossroads system that it has now um, as a way of having like rotating narrators for the GM as a way of like withholding certain amounts of information until after the crossroads so that you you can have suspense even though there is no GM, there is no like omniscient person who's supposed to know all the secrets. You all kind of compartmentalize it and you experience it at different times. Um, and it just it was a product that I really loved. Like, The Skies of Axia is the first campaign we did. And again, because the rule system is so light and easy to learn, we didn't need to release a rules book with it. We The first product that we released for Emberwind was a campaign that had enough standalone rules that you could just take it out of the box and play. Um, and it's a fun storyline. So I slowly, like, um, never intended to, like, get as involved as, as I did. And now I'm... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I designed and I'm running the Kickstarter. I'm writing the next campaign. I'm writing a lot of the lore pieces. Um, I'm still doing some of the systems design um, and a lot of the rules voice and rules editing, almost all the marketing copy and, and a bunch of the social media. So I've I've gotten myself in deep, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say, a little bit in deep? Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. But it's, so, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Now, was it really important to make the level of entry as you as you as you stated there to not have that separate rule book to actually just make it a standalone piece to to lower that level of entry was that important to hold on to did you find yourself possibly getting away from that especially someone with so much experience from tabletop right like you could really get deep it's interesting i ended up being the the one that was really the proponent of like lower the barriers to entry um especially like if you're going to be selling this at conventions you're going to want to 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 have a pretty wide field for people you can get into it. Um, and the plan was always to make Emberwind a modular game where you could swap out rule sets, you could add in more complex rule sets. And Derek is the kind of player who like always plays on hardcore mode. Like He <laughs> always wants the game to be killing him every five minutes or he's not having fun. Because oh um, he wants to be challenged, he wants to learn, he doesn't like feeling like there's kid gloves on. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like kid gloves, but I like being at that level where I'm learning by staying alive. Um, so he always wanted to like make the game harder, faster, more intense, more complex right out of the gate. Um, and he was also the one who designed a kernel so simple that you could teach it to someone like it was a board game in five minutes. Um, uh, but he wanted to, you know, a lot of his passion was for the, the most complex version of it. Um, and what we ended up kind of doing was looking at, okay, well, what can we, let's use the campaigns as a way of teaching people how to play the game. Let's, let's teach them the kernel and some of the more expanded complex stuff. Um, and let's teach them the strategy because that's really what's so interesting about Emberwind is he's created like an ecosystem where strategy emerges really naturally and organically. Um, and especially where strategy, like we've already seen people who are looking at the Emberwind beta and realizing like, I don't just want to build characters. I don't just want to build heroes. I want to build a party. 
because it's so much more interesting when you're looking at what the whole party can do together and how the how the abilities play off each other. Um, so that's that to me was something that I wanted to get in front of as many people as possible. Um, and I really wanted to make the game easy to learn and pick up. Like I wanted. I wanted someone who's never played a tabletop game to be able to learn the rules in five minutes if someone else was teaching them. And I wanted someone to be able to teach the rules to themselves in about half an hour. Because um, part of our goal, especially if we're doing a GM-less system, is you know we're trying to hit that sweet spot where you have a gaming group that can't always get together consistently, where the GM doesn't, doesn't always have time to make campaigns or, or get their notes together. So sometimes it's just nice to like pick up an adventure and go, and that means really reducing the prep time. Um, so that was my goal, was to like make it more accessible. And I think that you know i think there are gamers who won't like that and who are waiting for the more complex stuff to come out and won't like the basic rule system i think they'll still love the gameplay from skies of axia but they're going to want to bring in their custom heroes they're going to want to use the hard modes on all the fights that we put in because we did do a hard mode and easy mode for most fights um and they're going to want to layer in the custom content and the custom rules which is part of what we're releasing now with core core is like somewhere in between the really stripped down version that you see in skies of axia and between the really complex version that derek wants to get to but what i want to do is is have these these ways to let people in and have them learn the, the system so that they can enjoy the emergent complexity that much more mm -hmm. when we layer in new content because if you start off handing people this like beast of a complex rule book and these really intense formulas for calculating how your character works, you know, I, I think it's just a harder, a harder way to get people into it. Well, I was going to say, and the, and the thing is, it's, it's so much more popular now than it's ever been to embrace your geek, yeah. to embrace your geek right? And we're seeing yeah. a whole new generation of people that are, well, uh, you know, welcoming the idea of just giving into the inner nerd and doing the things they enjoy, not, not worrying about any labels or brands or anything come with that. And that's great. It's awesome. But with that too, it's is they're they're delving into a, a world and a culture where there is such varying levels of difficulties and yeah. things that are be extremely popular, like Dungeons and Dragons, for example. The barrier of entry to that is, you know, it is a little difficult if you haven't grown up with someone around that understands how to transfer that. And so, you know, I think it's very, very wise that you guys are doing this, uh, have done this, and are maintaining that element of making sure there's an entry, a, a guideline, that kernel you mentioned. I think it's a fantastic idea because it's you're going to be able to amass a larger audience that can grow with that and develop with that. And then as you guys add the complexity over the way, they're going to have the ability to, to add and grow with this as you guys grow the, the whole storyline as well. Yeah, I think that, you know, the that complex version is like the best form of, of what Derek has built with Emberwind. And like Derek, I just got to say, like, as, a, as a designer, like I've never seen a mind like his. Um, his brain can at the same time think about like balance and scale across an entire system and at the, and have all of those mathematical values in mind and at the same time also be like but is it fun and if it's not fun then what's the point in doing all the math mm -hmm. um, and he's so good at balancing that complexity and fun um, so I, I agree with him that like our, our very best product you know the thing that's going to most distinguish us from every other RPG out there is the most complex version of the game but I want to get people there you know and, and I think that what we're doing now is basically coming up with this really awesome and, and faster to learn version that's an onboarding program to get people toward the complexity um, and that in and of itself is so satisfying like I think I think that even an intense gamer could get you know three years of really great play out of the core system before needing something more complex to like keep them interested um, and I think especially with the regularity of campaigns we want to release like we'll have all these storylines and the complexity in the storylines is interesting because we have a lot of easter egg material a lot of like behind the scenes lore that we're kind of dribbling out bits and pieces. Um, 
so people who like love a complex game, who love paying attention to detail, who want a theory craft, like it's all there. We're planting those seeds, um, and they're going to get to harvest those over time as the different uh, the different stories come out. So there's there's definitely material there for them. I think like for me, um, I, and I t- actually I met Derek at uh, the fan days uh, there last weekend. Super nice guy. He uh, gave actually uh, us a copy of the Skies of Axia to uh, to try out and to, to look over. And I looked over it last night, and I said this to Derek. I said, I'll tell you, the last time I tried to play D&D, uh, we spent like seven hours creating our character, and then we got too tired to play. Yeah. Something like this. And, and then I tried to get back into it actually recently, and I, you know, I looked at the books that I would have to buy. I mean, you can technically, I guess, get some of the stuff online, and there are shadier ways of finding it, but... If I want to get into a proper campaign with D&D, there is that higher bar. I've got to spend a fair amount of money to or know people that have the books to get into it. Uh, Whereas this, really, I can buy one book, some dice, go online, print out the the extra pieces, like if I want the maps or the the tokens, that kind of thing. And it's, it's all there. It's all contained. It's all one thing. And then the other thing that's really nice, as you mentioned you don't have to have somebody who's a dedicated GM so that player's not taken out of the game. They get to be playing as well. Uh, I mean, there are people that like to do that, and your game, um, what is it? It's called a, a storyteller. Is that the, yeah. the, the term? Someone who's dedicated to doing that. So there is that option for somebody who wants to do that. But for me and my friends, if there's only three of us, we don't want to have one person that's doing the GM and then the other two play. This way... Uh, the way the system works is you can pass it around and you each read um, uh, an encounter and then you pass it along. And so everyone's involved. Everyone's working from both sides. They're doing their own heroes and they're also controlling uh, enemies as well. Uh, so I, I, the two things that really kept me away from D&D are already eliminated in this game. And I think for me too, the comparison I think uh, would be like, I, so I'm a magic player or at least i yeah that's that's my background uh for that kind of stuff like played years and years of, of magic this kind of reminds me of like like a core set maybe so it gets people in it doesn't have all the real crazy extra you know abilities and that kind of thing but it can get people in it can give them the flavor they can use those cards for more advanced decks uh, but they don't have to and they can keep it simple uh this seems kind of like that it's it's a it's a easier way to get into the, the system and they can still build off of this to a, a more advanced level later on if they want so i i know i from what i've seen and read over it i'm definitely itching to play it and i think it uh, it looks really cool yeah yeah i think it's a really good metaphor for it yeah it's it's definitely like a core set like we, yeah we want to give people the tools to play the game and enjoy it and it'll have value in their decks later um and you know i think part of what what derek has been doing almost more from like the business philosophy side is trying to make sure that like every book, if that's the only Ember Wind book you buy, you can still have a fun time. Um, so if you only buy a campaign, no worries. Like that's got all the rules you need to play it and enjoy it. If you want to bring in a custom hero, then get then get the hero manual, get the core book, and then you can do more custom content. You can have more freedom to like go off script and run scenes because you know how that that back end works a little bit better. Or if you don't want to buy a campaign, you just want to buy the core rule book. Um, you know, we release a lot of free content that's the, that are play, that's playable. So we release a lot of new foes and foe cards. You can set up combat, so you just want tactical combat. If you want something a bit more interactive, um, you know, we we do vignettes, which are these playable scenarios. The first one we released is really just a combat map. There's no 
crossroads. There's no, there's no role play. But um, and I don't think Derek will get mad at me for mentioning this. I don't think it's an exclusive Emberwind scoop, but I don't think he's mentioned it publicly. Um, the next vignette that we're working on has crossroads, so you'll get to do a little bit of role play before you hit the combat part, um, which means you get a bit more of a taste of like a mini campaign almost, and that's going to be free content that people can just go and enjoy. Wow. So if all you have is the core book for building heroes and running um, scenes, then great. We, you, here's, you just plug it into the free content and you're good to go. Um, and you know the part that I think people will be most excited about who are the, really like the hardcore tabletop RPG people will be when we start releasing storyteller tools. You know, we want to release, um, the first thing will probably be the, the storyteller's guide to Axia. So learning it like creating foes and settings and cities and and uh story threads people can pick up to tell their own stories in our setting and then eventually we just want to release like a whole dev toolkit where people can can build their own stuff entirely from scratch um but that's much further down the road and you know derek and i are both people who like like to get excited about the next project um so we're, we're we're making a very conscious effort to like focus on like especially when when you're just like entering the market in a in a bigger way like execute as flawlessly as you can, show that you're you're dedicated to the thing that you're putting in people's hands first, and then get excited about the next thing. Because um, there's there's too many people who are always excited about the next project, and they stop being excited about the current one. I think the one thing that I thought was really interesting when I was reading through the Kickstarter campaign was it specifically mentions that this first campaign was released without crowdfunding. The idea being. Uh, you guys went from start to finish uh, without any outside help, so you knew what kind of hurdles you'd run into, um, uh, the costs involved, that kind of stuff. There's nothing worse than funding a Kickstarter for a brand new game and then not knowing anything about the game, how it's going to turn out. You hear a lot of horror stories about people that have Kickstarter problems where the game or whatever doesn't come out on time or it doesn't yeah. come out the way it was supposed to, you know, or all that kind of stuff. So I think that was a, a really interesting idea. Was that something done on purpose or was it just a case of you really, you, you made it and now, you know, you kind of have that uh, history. Yeah, it, it was done very intentionally. Um, we wanted a chance to make our mistakes without uh, a lot of people waiting for us to fix them. Um, we wanted a chance to just feel our entire, like, A, you know, we were inventing our workflows and, you know, the way the company operates is like, it's a group of us on discord who are all finding times, you know, all of us have like, some of us are like me where it's a full-time freelancers. Some people have day jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a collection of like five to 15 people in various levels of like how close they are to the heart of this thing, um, working on this together. So we want to figure out like what are our workflows going to be, what is handing up a project look like, what does project management look like, um, what's physical production going to look like, and what what snags are we not expecting to see that we're going to run into, um, what happens when we disagree on creative direction, how do we resolve that, and how do we resolve that fairly and quickly? So we wanted to, to make all our mistakes when the timeline wasn't putting other people off, um, and where you know if it if it cost it cost us. Um, and, you know, we definitely, we, we made mistakes with Skies of Axia. It took longer to produce than we thought it would. Um, uh, it got longer in length than we thought it would. Um, there are still, like, one, one thing that we do is a live development model. So we regularly re-release our content and make the, the new PDFs available to anyone who's bought physical books in the past. So I'm guessing, if Derek did his job right, that he gave you um, a download code he did. with the book. Yeah. Um, which means that you can always access like the most recent version of Skies of Axia. So like, 
the the first generation print version, like you know, there there's a few typos in it. I think there's one page reference that's wrong, so you, we send you the wrong page depending on which path you take. But it's very easy to see, like the scene name is correct, so you just go to the scene name. Um, so we you know we made a couple of mistakes that um, we don't want to be making when we release the next round. So it's nice to like have really massaged those out and to to have made those mistakes in a more compact scope, so we can focus on on like hitting things as hard and as well as we can um, for the next release. You just kind of you made me think of something when you're describing this uh, this process. You know, it's obviously a product and a um, like a, a labor of love. Because the amount of customer care you just described, and from a company <laughs> standpoint, is absolutely huge, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you don't our, get you our, know, our web developer um, <laughs> is not a customer service guy, but he's forced to be because of the number. Like, we need you to build a custom bit of code that's going to let us do this for customers, so they know that there's a new version out. Um, but also, we wanted you to be able to suppress these people who don't want to be bothered every time there's a new version. And also, like, and and so the number of things we ask him to do custom because of that level of like. We want the customer to have exactly what they want as conveniently as possible. Um, is pretty huge. Um, so yeah, I just want to acknowledge that not everyone involved in that. Won't, it, it, uh, we've made to, to deliver that. We've had to make promises on behalf of people who wouldn't want to do it otherwise. So uh, thank, this is a shout out to Spencer. Thank you, Spencer, because you're you're being a real trooper with this. <laughs> well, I can speak from experience when I downloaded the. Um... So with the Skies of Axia, there's a, a support package that you can download. I mentioned before that there's maps and tokens. But in that, there was a sheet that it seems, I guess, since the printing of the book, you guys have uh, changed up some of the symbols and, and kind of streamlined some of the terms. So even that's included in there. So even if I didn't know to look for that, I would have found it because I got the support package because the book tells me to get the support package. So I'm not missing anything. So that confusion isn't there. I don't have to go look for you know, some document on the website, it's, it's all in that package, which I thought was really neat. And the fact that you guys have that much, you know, free content essentially built into it. And, and like you said, these added uh, um, scenarios and, and vignettes and stuff that are going to carry on. It's for something, something like D&D where the players tend to be the ones that, that, that make that stuff available for free. They, they do their own uh, scenarios in that. For this game being as young as it is, you don't have that as an opportunity yet. So it's nice to see that you guys are continuing to, to push that stuff out. Now, you guys yeah. have a Kickstarter for the the new uh, scenario that you're writing, as well as the core book. Um, is there anything you want to tell us about that Kickstarter and, and what's going on with that and where people can find information on it? Yeah, so uh, the Kickstarter is live until um, Sunday at midnight. I think that's December 16th. Yeah. Um, yeah, at midnight um, EST. And yeah, it's um, uh, it, honestly, it's the best prices that you're going to find on Emberwind stuff, um, especially for like the digital. Um, so take advantage of the weak Canadian dollar if you're listening <laughs> from the States. Um, and um, yeah, like it's just, it's we're putting our heart and souls into it. If you back... Uh, right now, you can get access to the beta. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're adding people toward the beta daily, so just send us a request and we'll get you in on it so you can kick the tires. And if you don't like the system, you're always welcome to cancel your pledge or adjust it. You know, we want people to really be excited about what they're buying, which is a, a very backwards model. Like I know a lot of people, um, they kickstart the beta. We, we are trying to give people the beta before they, we actually run their credit card so that they can know that they like it. Um, like we're, we're willing to take that bet. Um, and so far it's paid off. Like it's been exciting. In fact, we've had, you mentioned like the fan created content. We are, someone's already created a fan discord for, um, for Emberwind. 
uh, and we've had people develop like uh, custom PDF fillable character sheets, which we hadn't created yet. Oh, wow. um, so you're getting help and, from the outside world already. Yeah, yeah, actually, it's, it's amazing. Um, so, so we're starting to see like that community build around it. And it's just like, it's the most amazing and crazy thing, considering that like two years ago, I was having a theoretical conversation about what if a Kickstarter was run for this non-product um, in a in a in a like a, in a Starbucks like that was that's where this was two years ago, mm. um, less than um, and now there's like a book out that we're already going to be heading on to our second printing of soon, um, and uh, and then the Kickstarter is, has has passed forty thousand um, dollars, which is you know way more than our original goal. So yeah, um, I would say check out the Kickstarter. Uh, it's if nothing else, it's got a very cool trailer and a lot of really pretty art to look at. Um, and if you find that you like it, then you can try out the beta and 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 see if you're into it. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm really hoping that in the last week we can um, smash through a few more stretch goals, add some more like custom content that people can play around with for free. Um, and yeah, just just see how how far the party can can dungeon crawl through uh, through these stretch goals. And it's like for those listening, like these books are by no means cheapy books. Like oh, wow. we were talking about this the other night. Like these are beautifully done books, or the, definitely the, the Skies of Axie book that we have. It's amazing to look at. And we were kind of saying how nowadays you can release a book that could go, you know, on the shelf side by side with, you know, a quote, you know, professionally done book, if you will, from like a chapters or something like that, if, if those exist anymore. Um, and, and you couldn't tell the difference. And we were talking about this with, uh, with games as well. We were talking, and this kind of, loosely ties into this because part of your Kickstarter goal um, or the stretch goals is you're bringing in uh, more content from other people. And one of the uh, people that's creating content is a former guest that we had on the show, Jason Anarchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, we were looking at his games and, you know, we kind of seen the progression of his stuff and you could put his latest games up on the shelf next to, you know, something like a, a pandemic or a Catan or whatever. And if you didn't know, like, you wouldn't know that it, this is an independently created product. And the, the Emberwind books are exactly the same way. Like, you look at this book, I wouldn't know that this is an independently, you know, created project. It doesn't, it looks, like, really, really good. Like, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, and, like, you know, from day one, Derek did not want to be competing with other indie games he wanted to be competing with D&D for like the way that our assets came together and that's like that's been his vision right out of the gate um so that's definitely a testament to him and then to uh Tim uh Timothy is our uh print guy um and he like actually owns a printing business overseas he he lives there and he's like on the floor with production so you couldn't ask for someone who's like more committed to their craft who um who has like better industry knowledge um, and best practices to be able to give us like just a beautiful like physical product. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just like, we're lucky to have that team. And then again, I cannot gush enough about the art team. Um, like just the most incredible uh, like paintings and illustrations for, um, for our scenes and our foes and um, uh, the campaigns, the characters, like everything just comes out rendered in so much interesting detail. And like, even if you just look at the background of some of these illustrations, you're still like, oh wow, I want to, want to visit that. Like, that's, to say what you want about the Star Wars prequels, um, they have really beautiful backgrounds. And I right. spent a lot of time not caring about what's going on in the foreground and being like, I want to go explore there. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm not in any way comparing Emberwind to the Star Wars prequels. There's, <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. But, oh god, I'm gonna lose my job. Um, 
but what I will say is like, there's that environmental attention to detail. Like you just yeah. want to go exploring. Um, and that's one thing that I really love about it. That's awesome. Um, we kind of went around about way a little bit here, but I do want to touch briefly on your last, uh, I think it was your last Kickstarter project, uh, which was the, I have the book here somewhere. Where is it here? It is the postcards from impossible worlds. Um, yeah. that seems because it was, and we talked a little bit about this, it's kind of off from your normal stuff, I guess. Uh, yeah. it seems like something that you've, I guess I use the term labor of love. Like, was this something that you had been thinking about or working on for a long time? Yeah, a very long time. Um, like, I've been writing short stories since uh, before I started comics. Um, and, I, and I published a few in, like, like Canadian Literary Journal kind of stuff. Um, but uh, I, I found that I was, like, I wasn't having as much time for fiction as I was getting more and more into comics. So I started writing these little micro stories. Um, you know, sometimes they were as short as like two or three lines and sometimes they were longer. Um, but I, I, I found that I was really fascinated with this format where if I could fit the story on a postcard, um, it, it just changed the framework for how I'd read it. I, I would start to like read it as like a character piece where a character is, is sending me this story or telling me the story for a reason. Um, Cause there's something about, about the postcard format that's very like, personal you know there's there's not just the specificity of who is sending you the postcard but there's the specificity of the fact that they sent it to you Mm -hmm. why do they want you to know this and to hear this um and the more i sort of play with that idea the more i realized that i loved the idea that it was you sending yourself the postcards and there were these weird stories from like alternate universes and fringe realities where things could have happened differently where you could have been a different person and um that, that turned into something called the shortest story, which is like my, I write two micro stories a week. I format them as these weird kind of postcards um, and I just post them. And some of them aren't really stories. They're more like thoughts or like weird little meditations. Some of them are definitely proper narratives. Um, and I was just having so much fun with the format. Um, like originally I was just doing them for myself. And then uh, I think it was in June of last year. Um, so almost a year and a half ago now. That I started posting them. Um, and I was really just like, it was a side project I was just doing for me. Um, uh, I really didn't think they were going to go anywhere. I thought they were kind of too weird and a little bit inaccessible, but I was just having so much fun with them that I didn't care. Um, and it just, it, it took off in ways I didn't expect. The reaction when I first started posting them was better than I expected. Um, and then the Kickstarter was such a breaking point. Like, I, I really did not think that I was going to get um, a lot of response for like, hey, here's some, here's short, I mean, short stories. Like people don't really buy short stories these days. Um, it's, it's not like a, it's not a super popular and definitely not a very marketable format. Um, but people wanted to buy these like really weird short stories that I was writing. Um, and they were and they wanted to like read more. And they, some people theorized and connected different stories with lore. Um, and, uh, and some people started writing their own. And that's, that's the coolest thing is it's, it's a format that I guess, hasn't been it's like a multimedia format that that hasn't been done exactly this way like i think i've seen you know visually visual graphical arranged stories but it's just been really cool to see that response to it um and to see it grow into something where like originally like it was literally just me entertaining myself um and now now there's like actually like a community for it yeah and you've got as you mentioned there are guests uh, guest authors in this book as well that have uh, put in their short stories were those yeah. uh, friends of yours or those people that contacted you? How did you get those people to join in on the book? 
Uh, it was a mixture of things. Some some of the people um, were people that I kind of knew, um, like Sean Koss. I'd met once or twice at conventions, and and I I had him in mind for the project because I just like his artwork is really dark, and a lot of the stories I was writing, I, I felt like I was channeling a similar vibe. And it was actually just before I launched the campaign that I found out that he also is a, a writer. I knew that he'd like contributed jokes to Cyanide and Happiness because he does work with them. I knew that he'd done a lot of like really interesting, like he writes these really short, interesting cryptic sentences that go with a lot of his illustrations. Um, but I hadn't realized that he actually like put together and released a um, uh, his own like short illustrated short story collection. So when I found that out, like I immediately reached out and he was he was on board because he thought the format was interesting and and um, uh, thought he could do something like fun with it. Um, Robert Shearman, um, who is like just my favorite short story writer of all time and also a uh, writer of my, my favorite episode of Doctor Who of all time. Um, he uh, he was someone who's actually, it turns out, is working on his own collection of microfiction. So he was like just ready to go. Yeah, of course, like I'd love to send you a story and see what we can do with it as a, in the postcard format. Um, Jordan Shively um, is a, um, a writer who I'd always loved his work on this. He does this weird Twitter feed called Hottest Singles. And it's like, if you filtered... Uh, like internet culture um, through H.P. Lovecraft, you would get this weird, dark, <laughs> menacing voice. And he's so good at it. Um, and I, I've always wanted to work with him. So I just sent him an out of the blue email um, and was lucky enough to hear back. Um, Sonia Ballantyne is a, um, a filmmaker who I got to interview for um, helping out with writing this this column. And I just, I found her so fascinating as a writer. Um, I really wanted to see what she'd do with the format. Um, and she contributed a piece. Um, so there's been uh, like it was it was kind of a, a a weird series of invitations I sent out and I was just really excited to see who who came back and was really interested in the format um, and everybody delivered like such it, it all worked so well in the format but there was definitely different voices and it opened my eyes to different uses of it that I didn't anticipate mm-hmm. um, so I got to learn from watching other artists sort of step into this weird space that I created and do something different with it um, yeah and that was super super cool. I think you can definitely tell, like when I was reading through it um, again last night, you could kind of tell the ones that were not you. And that's not a knock against them, but you you definitely have this tone throughout uh, the book that when it's not you, it kind of stands out a little bit. It almost, it's very um, kind of almost like Tales from the Crypt or like um, it's, it's this really dark, not necessarily mean, but... Um, mischievous some of it like i don't know how to explain it it's kind of like a careful what you wish for there's there's a lot of that um and the twists and stuff it's 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 very well written um where can people get that book is it uh, available on your website is it available anywhere yeah. else yeah so um if you just go to shorteststory.com you can read all the stories that do two new two new ones every week and then if you go to shorteststory.com slash book um it'll take you to the page where you can read the book sweet yeah so I was going to ask you something a little bit uh, to follow up. You seem to have a uh, almost a mild expertise, or you, maybe you want to call it an expertise, uh, around the world of Kickstarter. And we yeah. know that some of our audience members are going to be aspiring to do their own work. They could be doing something that is following in the footsteps of yourself, uh, or maybe some of our past guests as well. And, and uh, you know, what advice to would you share with people to to help them not you know, go through that first horrible experience on a, on a Kickstarter campaign that just goes sideways on them. Yeah. Um, 
this is, this is an area that I do spend a lot of time thinking about and, and talking about, and I've gotten to do it to do a few panels on this topic. Um, the quick and dirty would be um, like make your first project small so that you can learn the basics. Um, over prepare, over prepare, over prepare, and then under promise and over deliver. <laughs> so so leave yourself like thirty percent more time than you actually need, so that when things go wrong, you have time to learn and still get your hit your deadlines. Assume that your budget's going to increase thirty percent. Um, and, and go small, you know, definitely leave yourself room for success. Uh, a lot of projects, um, get so successful that they fail where they, they reach a scale where they promise so much stuff that they can't actually deliver it. And that becomes an issue. Um, uh, you know, it's worthwhile doing a video, even if it's just a talking head, if you hate recording videos or editing videos and you don't like it, like find a friend who's good at that and work with them on it so you can learn the skills so you can do it for your next one. Um, you know, do some reading on like how to structure a crowdfunding campaign. There's a documentary, I think it's called like watch this before you launch your crowdfunding campaign. That's, that's really helpful just for setting expectations and learning some of the best practices. Um, the double clicks also wrote a really great blog. Um, if you search like double clicks, Kickstarter blog, it should come up. Um, and it's just about like how to, how to launch your first Kickstarter, even if you don't have a following, cause it's, you know, I think one of the great myths around crowdfunding is that, um, the crowd comes to you, uh, which is not really the case. With crowdfunding, most of the time, if you're successful, it's because you already had a crowd. You'd already released some work that got people excited, and you'd built excitement for it, and you had the crowd beforehand, and then the Kickstarter is is you mobilizing that crowd. Um, if you just kind of show up and expect a, a crowd to form around you, you're probably going to have a bad time. Uh, it, does, it does work, especially in some genres, like games, um, Tabletop games is an area on Kickstarter where people go to shop almost, or they go to see what's new and interesting. Whereas in like books, for example, people don't do that as often. You don't get as much people just kind of browsing, looking for a new book to try out. Um, usually that's something, or same thing with music. Usually it's something where you have to you have to bring bring your crowd with you. Um, and then a, a, a few like very silly things that are just worth considering. Like usually I recommend launch on a Tuesday because uh, it gives you as, as many weekdays as possible, which are your most active days for social media to get hype going. Um, but you don't want to do it on a Monday because there's all this backlog posts from the weekend that you'll get drowned out in. Um, helps to end on, usually I end on a Friday because it's a payday and it's the end of the week and it's climactic. Um, for Emberwind, we wanted a few more days toward Christmas to run. So I'm ending on a Sunday for the first time and I'm excited to see how that goes. Um, you know, weekends aren't the best for crowdfunding, but it gives us more time to like operate and do like an ending celebration. And, and I'm excited to see how that plays out. Um, and then the last thing is, um, like know why your Kickstarter matters, not just like what it is and what you're selling, but like why bother making it in the first place is a question that you want to answer for people really quickly. Um, Cause if you don't have an interesting answer to like why bother, then chances are your Kickstarter is not going to stand out in the crowd. Um, and maybe also it's a project that you should rethink because there, there may be a more interesting way to structure your project so that it is doing something more meaningful for you too. Um, so like, why do you, I mean, even just the answer is just, why do you care about it so much? That's something that you want to be able to explain to backers. Um, cause ultimately they're not just going to want to hear it's a cross between this and this. They're going to want to know like, why did you see a need in the world for you to make this thing? Um, and if you can answer that, that's your best chance of getting people on board. Yeah. I, I definitely see it as a, a really, a really, a really key attribute people need to pay attention to is that you're not just asking people to invest, but you're almost building, you're building a relationship with these people. 
Like they're, they are investing, but they're, they need to understand why they need to become, you're asking them not only to, to put money in, but you're asking them probably to become advocates as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For the messaging. So it's really important that you think about the fact that there needs to be a relationship uh, type conversation, not just a handout type conversation. And that, that yeah. probably helps a little bit too. It's such a crowded yeah, market too. Like to stand out, I think you really got to put some effort into it. Like you said, I don't think you can just put something up and hope for the best because there's just so many people now you mentioned the tabletop games like i've browsed through there and there's just there's so many of them up there and and to stand out that's got to be hard and i imagine like you said at least with the the tabletop games you're getting the eyeballs on that category something like books if you're saying it's not uh people aren't using it to shop for example like you said that's got to be even harder to stand out from the crowd without uh, really putting the work into it um I guess we've taken up a lot of your time. So why is there anything else you uh, want to mention? Is there anything? Uh... Where, are you, where are you going to be next or is any other other things coming up? I mean, obviously, we're going to put a little bit more emphasis on Ember Wind and the Kickstarter around uh, the, the, the next piece of that. But what about yourself? What's up? What's next? Um, let's see. You know, I, I don't have any new projects on the go right now. I'm kind of I'm kind of going into hibernation mode for the winter. It's a good time. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think I'm going to be I think I'm going to be vanishing into a creative hole for for a few months and and then seeing what comes out of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I have, I have no no media plans. Everwind is kind of the big thing going on right now. It's it's the uh, the engine that's burning the hottest. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what we get to release the stretch goals. Um, because I'm very excited for, um, you know, uh, definitely one campaign. And if stretch goals go really, really well, we might get to, to accelerate, um, the release on our third campaign, um, Empire of Shattered Glass. So, um, we'll see. Uh, but Ember will definitely be sort of the next, the next big thing you see for me. Awesome. And, uh, just to remind everybody, where can they go to find out more about Emberwind and, and also, you know, check out the Kickstarter. Yeah, so emberwindgame.com is a great place to go check out um, the game, the mechanics. Uh, you can go download some free uh, faux cards, uh, hero cards. You can read some lore. Um, we've got lots of free short stories you can read that'll kind of get you into the the setting and the storylines. Um, and then emberwindgame.com slash Kickstarter, but it's all over the front page, um, is where you can find the Kickstarter. And yeah, it's, it's, I think it's well worth going to look at the trailer and scroll through. It's a, it's. I feel like there's something in 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 um, Emberwind for everybody, um, and we're really excited to then I guess ex- to set this base out so we can expand and build more stuff. Um, and yeah, just seeing the reaction so far has been neat. So I think it's worth I think it's worth checking out. Awesome, and we'll have in our show notes we'll have all that stuff there. And if you're listening to this episode, you triple w happyzen.com will have links and everything there that you need to make sure you're headed in the right direction too. So. And then I guess lastly, where can people find out more about you personally, your work, your books, like we mentioned before, uh, where's the best place to send people? Yeah, right now, um, it's probably actually just like my social media. I'm at Rock Paper Cynic. I'm just about everything. Um, so yeah, follow me there and you'll, you'll kind of be kept up on the latest and rockpapercynic.com is kind of where you can go read the longest archive of my comics. Um, or uh, lookitspeter.com is uh, also where I kind of like just update on writing more in general. Um, if you want to like kind of get a sense of, of stuff that I've worked on. I love the name of that website. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, yeah, I, th- I thought it was fun. It's got, uh, you know, it's, it's very much my personality is like, oh, 
look, it's Peter. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we probably could have kept you on for much longer, and there's a lot more of your stuff that we can dive into. Hopefully, okay, guys, um, that's it. We can get you back on of later, Happy Zen especially once the, the next Thanks campaign again to our uh, awesome guest, comes out. Peter we can get you back on for joining us. That. Don't forget, uh, and you yeah, can find us on social media at Happy Zen Podcast and, uh, on Twitter thank you very and Instagram. Much for joining us. And we're on Facebook, yeah, Facebook.com so slash Happy Zen Podcast. Absolutely, Ben. Thank you. Our website, HappyZen.com, has all yeah, of our that's episodes, right. record. as well as subscription links <laughs> oh, and our social media all in one spot, so you don't have to go looking. Lastly, don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. We're on all major platforms now for podcasting, such as Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. See you next time.